It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Las Vegas continues to deal with the effects of the coronavirus on jobs, the economy in general, and the largest segment of our economy, tourism. But what about the emotional and spiritual effects as well, with loss of income, lack of social interaction, and increased anxiety? My guest is Rabbi Sanford Axelrod of Congregation Near Tamid. Rabbi Axelrod has served as a spiritual leader of Congregation Near Tamid since he came to Las Vegas in 1988, and he currently serves as a member of the Interfaith Council of Southern Nevada. For more information on Rabbi Axelrod and Congregation Near Tamid, go to lvneartamid.org and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash lvneartamid. And Rabbi, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Full disclosure, I know the rabbi, so there you go. <laughs> which, which Ira is this? Yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of Iras. You do, this is true. <laughs> well, it's probably been a challenging time for you during this period with so much going on under normal circumstances in Las Vegas, but I wanted people listening not only locally but around the world to understand that the impact on Las Vegas of the coronavirus has been different, I think, to some extent than other cities because of the impact on tourism and how that's the lifeblood of the economy and how that filters out to the communities in the sense of social isolation, loss of income, etc. So can you talk about that in a general sort of way, first from your perspective? Well, you, you kind of summarized it right on the nose. I mean, we went through the recession, we went through 9-11, each of those presented their challenges, but this is un its own unique animal. We've already reached unemployment nation numbers nationwide that we've not seen. The entire strip is closed, so it's not like certain elements are open, but not, not to snuff. It's just like a ghost town. We're in a science fiction movie. And because the virus itself is invisible, it's almost like we don't know who to trust, how close we can stand next to someone. And it's just you listen to the news, and if you listen too long, it makes you terribly anxious. So I think the impact of people's lives and the loss of jobs and the shutdown of the city and the, the fact that we're shuttered at home, I think it's going to continue to have after effects even when this starts to diminish. People have a little bit of PTSD, if you, if you will. There's good things that have happened. We can talk about that. Sure. But in terms of the bad things, for sure, there's been a complete meltdown unlike anything we've seen in our lifetime. How is it reflected in, in your congregation in the sense that you're, I'm sure hearing from people of all ages and from the wider community as well, but let's start talking first about from your congregation. What would be the major, not complaint, but I guess observation in terms of the impact of this coronavirus? I would say it's just starting to manifest itself, but it's really the loss of jobs. So the money from the federal government kind of helped people in the short term, but that, that's been given out. So now not only are people stir-crazy at home and they're done binge-watching and they're done getting to know their neighbors and taking up new hobbies, they're ready just to, to leave their homes and to get back on with their life. They know it will happen, but because there's no end at, in sight, it makes them just terribly anxious. 
but the very real loss of income, people losing their jobs, has gotten people very frightened. And I understand and I empathize. It's a terrible thing. So we, we need to get the businesses open, but we also have to balance it on protecting people's lives. And that's what the next phase will be. Do you have any advice for people dealing with that? I, obviously, you can't give them financial advice, but from a spiritual point of view, is there something you can tell them that will at least help them deal with the crisis and know that they're not alone? Well, the last few words are important. You are not alone. So you can feel lonely, but you're not alone. In many respects, we may be keeping a social distance of six feet or more, but through technology and through the, the phone, an actual phone call, not just a text or listening from voicemail to voicemail, people have really made an effort to stay in touch and contact with each other because they do feel lonely and isolated. And so through technology of all kinds, I think people can make that just a bit better. Not, it's not perfect, but surely it's not total either. There are things that we can all do so that we can have interaction with other people and remind ourselves and that we're not alone and commiserate with each other on, on what we're going through. Isn't but the at the same time, focus on things that will improve our lives. You know, I know cleaning out the closet and taking out a new hobby isn't top on our list anymore, but still some of the things that could keep us busy, do keep us busy, should be part of our daily routine, and that's important also. Absolutely. You have to keep a certain discipline or routine, as you say. Yeah. If you stop showering, stop, stop putting on clothes, and just stay in your bathrobe for six weeks, you're, you're going to get pretty depressed. Yeah, <laughs> yes, especially with the kind of bathrobe I have. You're yeah. absolutely right. <laughs> One thing you said was, was interesting about technology, because technology can be neutral. And what I mean by neutral, I think prior to coronavirus, technology was accused of being somewhat of an instrument for distancing people. In other words, you would tune out other people because it's easier to send a, a text or it's easier to just watch TV on your phone, whatever it is. But this is now turned around where we're actually using technology to talk to one another. And clearly, not only in your congregation, but in others and in the wider Las Vegas faith community, I would assume as well, there are services going on, there are meetings going on all through either Zoom or Skype or, or some other kind of platform. One of my colleagues, when this first started, I don't know, six weeks or seven weeks ago, he made a comment that really resonates with me. He said, as of this week, no matter how long we've been a rabbi, and it could apply to a priest or a minister or a mom, we all just started a new job. So however we practiced our rabbinate within our congregations, or ministers, or past, it's all changed. So everything was focused on the face-to-face, -face, a warm hug, a, a, an understanding, an aha, nod, uh, a funeral where you would give compassion. I'm doing funerals now with me and a camera, and then it's webcast. I'm doing uh, a bar mitzvah where there's a camera and me, and it's being Zoomed. I'm doing religious services which are now being streamed to, which ironically is a bigger audience, but they're out there. And the response of the people has been amazing. And they've been responding to 
to that need within them to stay connected to their faith, to their rabbi who gives them strength. And it's happening through technology. And I think it will have an afterlife, pun intended, because people were reluctant to learn Zoom. They just, you know, you'd get a certain aging, oh, that's for the younger people. I have classes where the average age is 70 and above, and they're getting there through technology, where last week they didn't even know how to get on the Internet. So that will be here to stay because people have been forced to learn it, and they realize it can be for the good and not just something that their grandchild uses to annoy them or shut them out. Necessity is a mother of invention. Yeah, or reinvention. A reinvention, sure. And your new title is now Rabbi and Chief Technology Officer. <laughs> well, I wish I could claim the competence in that. Thankfully, Cantor Hutchings, who's in her 30s, has grasped onto this technology much quicker than I. And between the two of us, our ideas merge together, and she's really been very good at providing this technological enhancement to the synagogue. What used to cost us broadcasting through a $10,000 camera, she found a camera for 400 bucks, And the image is four times as good, and the sound is three times as good. And who would have thunk, right? Exactly. But, but there it is. <laughs> it is amazing. And the fact that you, she's at that age where she can handle those things for you is great. And she sings well, too, so that's great. That's right. <laughs> so, not just a, another pretty tech face. Right? Exactly right. <laughs> so she's actually the chief technology officer. Yeah, she's the chief, chief technology. Yeah, I don't want to <laughs> take that from her because what if she gets mad and pulls the plug on me? <laughs> <laughs> then you're back to I don't know going door to door, which you can't do right now. So that, that part as well. Talking about the wider community in that sense, uh, do you see more of because I mentioned your reference as a member of Interfaith Council of Southern Nevada. Do you see a move in the direction of the various faith groups in Las Vegas getting together to address the challenge of the virus on the population as a whole through events or through meetings or ideas or even just getting together as the leaders in a council to discuss that? Well, I wish I could say that it brought us closer together as an interfaith council, but I think really what happened is people kind of went into their own individual silos. And, and, and I say that not in a bad way. It's just it overcame us so quickly. Everybody started a new job. Oh, my God, now how are we going to broadcast services? And for those uh, religions who require a weekly tithe, how are we going to support it? Those who have a different business model, so to speak, what are we going to do? Are people going to remain members? All these questions came up in the air. And so, for example, in our movement, we have national resources, and we turn to our national governance that says this is what congregations are doing and this is what best practices. So it didn't happen where an imam might say, well, how are you doing services, Rabbi? Can we share? Can we learn from each other? Immediately, everyone just kind of figured it out on their own, and it kind of went in two categories. They went and web-streamed it, or they went and Zoomed it. And everyone just kind of figured it out. And I've been talking to people informally, whether they're congregants or whether they're the pastor, and they've tried to create a virtual product, if you will, that's satisfying as much as possible 
to their community. And pretty much they're anxious to get back in their buildings like we are. But that's what's been going on. We've all been doing the same thing, but not necessarily in a coordinated fashion. Right. Not from a, Certainly not from a technical point of view. But I think and what I'm suggesting is maybe the larger issues involved in reaction to the impact of the coronavirus, such as, as we discussed, unemployment, sense of loneliness, et cetera. These are universal themes. And I would think at somewhere down the road, the different members of the interfaith community would get together and maybe come up with some ideas that haven't been thought of individually or individual faiths. I, I think that's uh, something that we need to target. But I think at this level right now, the Catholics, the Jews, the Muslims all have their own welfare societies, if you will, that have started to serve their populations. And because of the social distancing, you can't, you can't have like a vigil. You can't invite people in large groups and talk to them and say, let's go do this. So I really think it's, it's, it's fallen to the individual stream of that religion to take care of its community. And then in the bigger picture, we've been relying on the government because it's such a massive program. We're relying on the government to sustain us. One thing that did come from the Interfaith Council, I said, why, why don't we have a forum and address some of these spiritual issues? So we did do a Zoom forum, which was a first, and I would say over 100 people joined in, and they were able to hear a rabbi, a imam, a priest, and a minister of different faith traditions, of course, addressing issues of, you know, is God punishing us? Is, is the, the virus you know, a theological statement is the fact that we can now breathe clean air and the environment. Is this a wake-up call by God? These were all interesting theological questions that we speculated on, and I think it was helpful to the audience to hear our, each of our perspectives. Well, let's take a break. My guest, Rabbi Sanford Axelrod of Congregation Near Tamid, served as the spiritual leader of Near Tamid since he came to Las Vegas in 1988 currently serves as a member of the Interfaith Council of Southern Nevada. For more information on Rabbi Axelrod and Congregation Near Tamid, go to lvneartamid.org, and you can follow them on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash lvneartamid. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. Thank you for staying home from Nevada. As we continue to work together to prevent the spread of COVID-19, we must all do our part. Avoid non-essential travel and gatherings. Work from home. And remember, if you must go out, stay six feet from others and wash your hands often. If you're sick, you must stay home. We all know someone we want to protect. Mom, grandpa, or a family friend. There are many reasons to stay home for Nevada. And stopping the spread of this virus is up to all of us. And I encourage Nevadans to stay up to date with reliable information by calling 211 or visiting the Nevada Health Response website at nvhealthresponse.nv.gov. Thank you to everyone for supporting your neighbors, working together, and staying home for Nevada. This message funded by a grant through the Nevada Department of Health and Human Services aired in cooperation with the Nevada Broadcasters Association and this station. Now, let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. 
Welcome back. I'm talking with Rabbi Sanford Axelrod of Congregation Near Tamid on the emotional and spiritual effects of the coronavirus on Las Vegas. Rabbi Axelrod has served as a spiritual leader of Congregation Near Tamid since he came to Las Vegas in 1988 and currently serves as a member of the Interfaith Council of Southern Nevada. For more information on Rabbi Axelrod and Congregation Near Tamid, go to lvneartamid.org and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash lvneartamid. And Rabbi, a question that comes from all of this is more generalized than even Las Vegas is why do people turn to religion in times of stress or do people turn to religion in times of stress? I'm assuming that's the case based on my reading of history, but from your perspective. Well, you can probably laugh, but there's, there's two reasons. One, baseball was canceled. <laughs> all right? Football was canceled. <laughs> Correct. So we no longer had the great god of sports, all right? <laughs> so they, what else are they going to do? They can only binge watch so much. Right. So now, now they have time on their hands to think. All right. So there's a little bit of uh, irony in there, and there's a little bit of truth. But the next thing is the unknown, the uncertainty. And what, what, is, what is faith? Faith is believing that there is a meaning behind our challenges in life. And if we posit that there is no meaning, that it's all random and it's chaos, that's pretty frightening. So to reassure people, they turn to religion and they want to hear a spiritual message from their rabbi or so forth. They want to, they want to hear the message that there is hope, that there is love, that random acts of kindness do matter. And when they hear that, it restores them their sense of faith in mankind and, and our ability to win this war against this virus as we've won so many other wars in the past. This one just happens to be uniquely different. I know a cynic or a cynical person would say, and this is a historical reference, that religion is the opiate of the people or opiate of the masses. But obviously, from your point of view, it's, it's, it's very meaningful. And you're able to communicate that, especially on your sermons, which are usually delivered Friday night and on Saturdays. But it seems to me that this extra level of tension and insecurity is more of a challenge, I would say. I'm speculating more of a challenge to you because it's not normal, and it may become the new normal, but it's, at the, it's not normal right now. It's, we're getting used to it, but it's still not normal. So is there a greater challenge you find in terms of looking at it that way? I don't know if that's the challenge. The challenge is just, even as it impacts your congregation, it impacts you as a rabbi personally. So you have to, you know, some, some things affect other people. This affects everybody. So on the one hand, there's been very few things in human existence which impacts everybody at the same time. Now, I'm not implying that it impacts us equally. Someone wrote a beautiful essay that said, we're not in the same boat, we're in the same storm. Some people are in the boat where they have a job. Some people are in the boat where they're unemployed. Some people are in the boat where there are people who are sheltered at home with them. Other people are by themselves. Some people know someone who's died of the virus, and some do not, you know. So we're really in the same storm, and the fact that we're in the same daily storm has brought us together and made other issues seem small. And that, that's part of the hope, and religion can echo that theme and the importance. So I've sought to communicate with people through my sermons, mainly on Friday night, as you mentioned, we're on at 7 p.m. through our, um, our web stream 
off of our webpage. But then once or twice a week, I've been writing a series of essays called In the Time of Corona. So I will write about Passover in the time of Corona, mourning when there's a loss of a loved one in the time of Corona. The next one that I'm going to release is Walking Your Dog in the Time of Corona. And that's true because everybody gets a kick that the dog is getting walked. But we used to think we were walking the dog. It's now become very clear to me that my dog is walking me. <laughs> this dog is saying, hey, buddy, you can't just sit around the house, eat, eat, you know, uh, eat cereal and, and binge watch Netflix. Get your tuchus up, get out of the house, get some fresh air, get some interaction, if nothing else, with nature, and have a reason to get up and move forward. And so that's, that's kind of the theme of my essay, taking something so simple as walking the dog and trying to get a comforting message. And that's, and that's why the dog is a man's best friend. That's why the dog's a man's best friend, right? And perhaps sharing with us an unseen wisdom beyond the, the fact that they want to go out. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt that they see you laying around in that aforementioned bathrobe and watching Netflix and say, come on, let's go. You know, in that sense. So it's it's an interesting time. Do you feel because of the challenges of the coronavirus that you've, and I don't want to make it too, too uh, what's the word, too deep, but do you feel you've grown uh, in certain ways having to deal with the impact of something that's never happened before in Las Vegas? I, I, I think it's a, it's a great question, and I reflect on it. Look, I'm in my early 60s. I don't plan on retiring anytime soon, although soon's relative, right? Sure. Um, and you, you look at your career and you say, am I preaching the same way? Am I doing the same potluck the same way? This all of a sudden, as I mentioned, a rabbit started new. So all of a sudden I had to learn new technology in the time of corona. I had to find a new way to communicate. I had to find a new way to teach. And developing this skill set really reawakened within me this new sense of creativity and sense of pride. And I'm already looking to the future of what's going to stay and what's not. Because surely if someone belongs to my congregation, which is in Henderson, and they live in Summerlin, and it's a 30-minute meeting, they may just prefer to have a FaceTime or a Zoom meeting. You know, a phone call was never quite enough, so they wanted to have that interaction with me so they would drive. But at a certain point, they may say, you know what, this is good enough. We can see each other eye to eye. And so there will be this afterlife of meetings and classes that will allow more people to become involved. So it's really, in, in the sense of being a creative rabbi, it's been very fulfilling. But in terms of being deeper as a human being, yeah, you now have time to, to think about things in a different way in your relationship with your congregation, your family members, and the fragility of life, all those things that everybody thinks about, you know? But now you have that time and inclination to think about them. It's there. can't be avoided by staying busy or keeping busy. Oh, absolutely. I find, too, that I, for example, have contacted and been contacted by people who I haven't talked to in recent times because I feel a connection with them and they feel a connection with me. And I assume that's the case with you as well, although I'm speculating. Oh, yeah, for sure. When I walked the dog two days ago, I called my college roommate. <laughs> we, had, we hadn't talked in two years, uh, and we haven't been roommates in over 40. So 
yeah, we're catching up, and and he was anxious to talk to me and so forth. But otherwise, we would have just sent a random text or Facebooked each other, you know? Right. So you were what you're telling me is you were walking and talking at the same time. You were yeah, walking the dog and not, talking on the phone. But I wasn't chewing gum. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> that would have been that would have put me over the edge. Okay? But you but you do have to keep an eye out for people getting near you while you're talking to your friend because <laughs> of the virus. So it, it is a whole new world, and I I have the feeling now I'm going to speculate. I've never you and I have not talked about this, but as we've talked just now, I'm going to speculate that I think you have a book in you about this subject. There could be the essays that I'm doing in the time of, depending upon how long this goes, it could turn into a, a book of reflections because uh, I think some of them have turned out to be insightful gems. But beyond that, mm, I don't know. There's, a, there's a, a book of a different kind that's related to this that I really wanted to do, which is actually a book of, how do I say this, of comforting a community in times of crisis. That's well, a project. Yeah. So in the past, before this, I was thinking of these mass shootings. I was thinking of, of hurricanes and earthquakes. In other words, bad things will happen. And when they happen and they impact large groups of people or you create a trauma within a city, such as 1 October, all of a sudden the community wants clergy, among others, and the leaders to band together and to create a response. So I thought, you know what, let's, you know, I'm sitting in this room and no one knows much about Judaism or this one doesn't know much about Catholics. So why not write a book that has standard melodies and has standard rituals and suggested symbolism so that when these things do happen, the people in charge have a resource book and they can say, oh, that's a great idea. You it know? is. It's a handbook for crisis. It's, a, it's right, but to bring a handbook to bring comfort to a community in crisis. Right. So don't steal that idea. <laughs> you, know, to that. you can call me up and we'll collaborate. All right. Fair enough. As <laughs> don't long as steal the idea. I'll just write the foreword. Okay. That, 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 that's right. fine. <laughs> Before I let you go, because you came to Las Vegas in 1988. What surprised you about what you thought you would find and what you did find? And then has that changed over the decades? You mean find in Las Vegas itself? Correct. Like, in other words, when you were coming here, you, I'm sure, I'm sure had a perception of Las Vegas. When you finally arrived, was that perception accurate? And then since then, over the decades, has your reality changed living and working in Las Vegas? Well, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I'm from Palo Alto, California. I'm the son of a rabbi. That's where I grew up. My wife, on the other hand, was an army brat, and the, the place she lived the longest was Reno. So when it came time to find a job, there was a job in California, there was one in Champaign, Illinois, and there was Las Vegas. And her family lived in Reno. She said, let's interview in Las Vegas. I said, well, what do you mean? That's like, there's Jews there, there's gambling. It's <laughs> not for me. She says, well, I grew up in Reno. I turned out okay. I thought, oh, great. So I moved here, and there really wasn't that much in Jewish life. But I was 30 years old. So I thought, wow, this is a place I can build a career. And that's what I've done. And I found, without disparaging colleagues, but the city at that time attracted people who, who had uh, a past or um, a vice. There was no one who said, oh, I want to go to Las Vegas. 
They would say, I want to go to L.A. or Chicago or New York or Florida. But because we did have roots here, as soon as we moved here, my wife's family moved from Reno to Las Vegas, and I was just a plane ride away, we just called it home. And I wasn't into, you know, the gambling. If I go to a casino, it's because of the, you know, the smorgas, well, the buffet. They don't call it smorgasbord. The Correct. buffet <laughs> and the shows. All right. And all of that I thought was great. And I came just at the time when they started opening up the Mirage in Treasure Island. The town grew. So it's been career-wise very, very interesting and satisfying. And I always kid people. I say I just live it as if I live in Cleveland, Ohio. The, the allure of the Strip is really, in my mind, for the tourists and what sustains our community. But what sustains our community as a community are the houses of worship, are the schools, are the people who live here and breathe here and, and raise their children here. And that's how I live my rabbinate. And, and the surprise is, guess what? There's regular folks in Las Vegas. <laughs> there is, and that's There's a great... regular folks and people who li- live outside here don't know that for some reason. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Rabbi Sanford Axelrod of Congregation Near Tamid. Rabbi Axelrod has served as the spiritual leader of Congregation Near Tamid since he came to Las Vegas in 1988, and he currently serves as a member of the Interfaith Council of Southern Nevada. For more information on Rabbi Axelrod and Congregation Near Tamid, you can go to lvneartamid.org and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash lvneartamid. Rabbi, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Ira, for having me. It's a pleasure being here. I always love listening to your show, and it's a pleasure being on it myself. Appreciate it. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Be my